This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning we hear more from the Navy about what caused a pipe rupture at the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility back in May. An investigation points to human error. The military declined to say what disciplinary action it's taken, but it was a serious error. The underground tanks hold hundreds of millions of jet fuel and sit just a few, uh, just 100 feet above a critical aquifer that we draw our drinking water from. Captain Gordy Meyer is the commanding officer of the Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command. But we start with Captain Bert Horniak, Fleet Logistics CO, who explains how proper procedures weren't followed during the transfer of fuel in the system. So the investigation concluded that on 6th May of this year, the Red Hill facility experienced a release of 1,618 gallons of jet fuel, so in military terms, JP-5. Important to note that the Navy had the infrastructure in place to rapidly and effectively respond. Our systems successfully recovered all but 38 gallons of fuel. And to clarify, the, the release occurred from the pipeline, not the tanks themselves. So the investigation had found that errors on the part of the Red Hill system operator was the primary cause of the release. Since the release, we have taken corrective action to improve safety in all aspects of Red Hill operations. So again, to, to go to the investigation, overall, the root cause or primary cause was operator error. Specifically, the system operator not close all of the valves as specified in the operations order before beginning a fuel transfer. Okay, so this was human error. Yes, ma'am. And so how do we put in redundancy so this doesn't happen again? So first and foremost, when we talk about what it takes to grow a system operator, the the system operators go through a competency-based certification. They also go through annual AFHE, so Automated Fuel Handling Equipment Training, annual underground storage tank or UST training, and annual spill response training. Additionally, they go through a series of drills. Every year, they go through an annual spill response drill, and every three years, they go through a worst-case response drill. With regard to modif- or procedures we have put in place post the event, we have done a couple of things. So first and foremost, we have now have dual operators in the control room. This is twofold. So one, it provides redundancy, and two, it that second operator is there for verification to ensure that valves are aligned and set up per the standard operating procedure. Additionally, every evolution is briefed to me as the commanding officer prior to um, fuel being moved anywhere in the facility. When you say evolution, what are you referring to? So, for instance, in layman's, term, in layman's terms, if I was moving fuel from a Red Hill tank to the truck fill stand to load a truck that is then going to go to the Coast Guard to support Coast Guard SAR missions. Okay, so whenever uh, that type of activity is uh, underway, then we'll, we will have dual operators? Yes, ma'am. Correct. Uh, What can you tell us about the current status of the tanks at this point? I mean, have the repairs to the pipeline already been started? Have they been completed? Where are we at? So with regard to the tanks, I think it's very important to note that the tanks are sound. The tanks continue to pass the semi-annual tank tightness testing. 
As for the portion of the JP5 pipeline where the release occurred, that has been that portion of the pipeline has been isolated, and a contract has been let to affect those required repairs. And I'll pause and pass to Captain Meyer to provide amplification on the repairs. Those repairs have been contracted as of late last month and will be completed no later than June of next year. So it's a, a lengthy process. It will take some time to make sure we do it correctly and to do all the appropriate things that are needed to ensure the integrity of the system and ensure uh, additional work is done to uh, increase the resiliency of the system. The tanks that are involved, I mean, it was tank 20 and I think 18 where the piping was damaged? Yes, the particular damage that occurred was uh, near at couplings near tank 18 and 20. Okay, and so the, the jet fuel that's in there, it just remains there? So to be clear, tank 18 is undergoing the routine clean inspector repair process. So that tank is empty. Uh, tank 20 does have fuel in it, fuel in it and it will remain secure in that facility until we uh, get those repairs completed. Yes. I'm looking at your report, and you basically talk about there are a number of tanks, three, four, there are five of them that are out of service for unrelated reasons. And I, I believe you, if I recall right, from the previous hearings over the years, that you generally have tanks you know, out of commission for repairs, that kind of thing, uh, maintenance. Yes, yeah, so we typically have two tanks offline, semi-permanently, which uh, we do not have a need at this time to use. And then additionally, we have uh, approximately three to four tanks that are offline at any given time that are going through the clean and re- clean inspect and repair process, which upgrade and make sure the tanks are to the highest standards. Okay, but then you, you, you do have three tanks that uh, are impacted uh, because of this uh, rupture in the pipeline? Hey, this is Captain Horniak. There are tanks that are isolated now due to the pipeline rupture. However, there is no impact to operations and our ability to support either the DOD requirement or in case of a natural disaster to support the state. And what can you tell us about just the integrity of the system, you know, to prevent fires or to respond to a a fire if there is one at the facility? Are all those systems, you know, uh, in place and in operation? This is Captain Meyer. And so the system remains in normal operation other than the pipeline failure that, that occurred from the 6th of May incident. And so our layers of protection to ensure a secure facility remain in place. And what can you tell the public just about the fuel that uh, did leak out, you know, what was retrieved and, you know, the impact to the aquifer? Yes, I'll talk about the impact to the aquifer, which which is none uh, to start with. Through the investigation, you've seen that exactly 1,618 gallons were released and all but 38 gallons were recovered. And so during this time frame, we've done some increased monitoring across Red Hill, above and beyond what we normally do to ensure there was no impact to the aquifer. And our ongoing analysis and sampling of the aquifer indicate there are no issues or concerns with the aquifer and the water remains safe to drink. You know, what can you say to assure the public that, you know, this isn't going to happen again? We continue to maintain the facility in uh, the highest state of readiness and 
bring it to the highest technological uh, standards that we have. And so we continue to do that. And in this particular incident from uh, the 6th of May, while we desired to have no uh, fuel releases, our systems worked as intended uh, to capture that fuel and prevent it from being released into the environment. Is there anything else that the Navy is going to change just to ensure that this doesn't happen again? And this is Captain Horniak. Yeah, we, we obviously, we are a learning organization, and, and we have placed greater emphasis on oversight during operations, as well as we have updated our, our indicators, so specifically as referenced in the report, the out-of-balance alarms, as well as the pressure-indicating transmitters, those settings which were, although they were set to industry standards, we have determined and realized through the course of this event that they were set too high. So we have adjusted those so that our operators will receive appropriate indications and warnings should a situation like this present itself again. Additionally, we also, on a positive note, we did learn that our response plan and the training that we do we actually had an opportunity to to put that in action in real life, and it's a testament to the level of professionalism and training of the Red Hill operators that they were able to respond and, and mitigate the release as quickly and efficiently as they did. And when you go back to the the cause, you know, you talk about operator error. Is there anything else as far as training that we need to improve on? Uh, this is Captain Horniak again. We always look to improve our training. Um, and we do that continually. Um, we are also looking to increase the frequency of, of our drills. But again, I'll go back to um, installing that second operator in control for evolutions um, is a level of redundancy as well as verification to ensure that um, you know, we prevent this from happening again. Any idea how much the repairs will cost? Yes, this is Captain Meyer, and so uh, we have a repair estimate um, that we are working through, and again, I believe a solicitation is uh, underway and so a little premature to discuss openly those particular costs as we uh, negotiate and work with our contractors. Okay, but I mean, is this going to be additional funding that we're going to have to seek in the budget, or is there something already built in to the military's you know, operations to cover things like this? We will be able to conduct these repairs within our existing controls. They are not that extensive that we need to seek a, a dish, significant additional funding outside of our, our current budget. And I believe the Hawaii delegation, you know, members have uh, uh, put in for additional money to ensure that we've got things buttoned down and there isn't going to be some, you know, catastrophic, you know, leak that, that's, that's going to either impact our water or, you know, the surrounding areas. Um, but is there anything, anything more you can tell us about that and, and uh, what the military plans to spend in the near future? So, ma'am, this is Captain Horniak. I'll tell you that we continue to invest and improve all aspects of Red Hill operations and maintenance. And along that, we also continue to collaborate with our regulators, DOH and EPA, to continue to ensure that we can safely and effectively operate the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility and to ensure that we are maintaining environmental protection, the protection of the community, as well as national security. Do you see any need for stepping up training either for the contractors that are involved in this? Because, you know, if I recall that one leak back in 2014, 
uh, you know, I believe that was a, you know, an operator error, right? It was just a, a, a crew that uh, didn't properly do the job that they were supposed to do. So, ma'am, this is Captain Horniak again. Captain Meyer and I will answer this in two parts. So, specific to the May 6th event, and I think it's important that everybody has a clear picture of the approximately 150 employees who work in the FLC Pearl Harbor Fuels Department. Three are uniformed, myself being one, and then the, the fuel department director and a lieutenant intern. The remaining personnel are government employees who live on the island, who work here, who raise their families here, as do I, this being my, my third tour in Hawaii. Specific to the 2014 release, that was not due to operator error. That was due to an error by the, by the contractor, but I'll let Captain Meyer provide additional information on that. Yeah, the difference between six May event and what happened with the Tank of Five release, obviously the six May event was by operators who are government employees. Uh, the 2014 Tank Five release was our, our contractors doing the maintenance repair. And since that time, we've done significant changes to our contracting procedures and how we work with them, as well as our government uh, quality assurance and quality control process that has now basically implemented a kind of a triple redundant process to ensure no such future incidents occur like that did at Tank 5. Anything else you want to say just to, you know, ensure us that the testing that is supposed to be done, you know, according to contracts, that it is being done? So the testing that we do is part of our contracts and the clean inspector repair process for the tanks. Uh, again, we have a dedicated government staff that is looking at the contractor's work who has their own quality control processes, but we provide that additional quality assurance process above and beyond that to ensure that uh, everything is done correctly. And so that is the process we have in place when it comes to maintenance and working with contractors. We've been talking or we've been hearing from uh, Navy Captains Gordy Meyer and Bert Horniak uh, about the Red Hill facility. The release of the spill report comes just before a Thursday meeting of the Red Hill Advisory Committee, which is expected to put the Navy in the hot seat. Booster shots and vaccines for children 11 to 5 years old. Those are the steps we're taking to keep COVID cases out of the hospitals. Earlier this morning, we talked to Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, about how things are looking up. The latest numbers that have just come out in terms of how we're doing as a state compared to the rest of the nation, for the entire duration of the pandemic, back to March 7 of last year and through the end of last week, we have the lowest infection rate in the nation for the duration of the pandemic, which is very, very good. So our infection rate in this state is the last of any states in the, in the country. And we have the second lowest death rate in the nation as of the end of last week. And that's, again, for the entire duration of the pandemic. So we have a lot to be proud of. But, you know, this didn't happen by accident to get where we are. And the issue is that, you know, the pandemic is still out there. There are still risks out there. Now, our hospitalization numbers have come down, which is very good. We have been below 100 COVID patients a day for each day for about the last 12 days now, which is good. And... The 100 patient a day threshold is just an arbitrary threshold that we set 
just to give us an indication of how we're doing, because below 100, that's very, very manageable. Once you start getting above 100, you know, it becomes more of a challenge taking care of all of those COVID patients on top of everyone else, because our hospitals are very full. But our vaccination numbers are doing well. Right now, we're doing about 35,000 vaccinations a week, you know, which is good. You know, we're doing around four to 5,000, you know, around 5,000 plus vaccinations a day. So that's doing well. Our booster shots, you know, we have about 74,000 people, uh, 74,000 individuals who have gotten their booster shots, which is good. And we've got the children, you know, 5 to 11, as you've just mentioned, who we expect the Pfizer vaccine to be approved or get a use authorization for that group of individuals. Now, the good news is that we've not had a lot of pediatric hospitalizations in the state from COVID. We've had some, but it hasn't impacted our state, the at least uh, from children's perspective, as many other states have. So, Overall, we're doing very, very well, but this virus is still out there. There are still individuals who are not vaccinated, but we, you know, the mandates are helping as well. We believe that, you know, the people who'd wanted to get vaccinated or chosen to get vaccinated, they have, most of those have already been vaccinated. The ones who are getting vaccinated right now, apart from those who are getting the booster shots, are those who, you know, are now are being pushed or incentivized to get vaccinated because of their employers and, you know, because of mandates. So that is having an impact as well. So again, overall, we're doing very well as a state, but we need to continue to be vigilant. And what can you tell us about employers and whether we've got healthcare workers that have quit over this? Most of the healthcare employers in the state do have a some form of a vaccine mandate in the state. Now, there's different time periods of when they are going into effect, and all the all the healthcare employers that I'm aware of do have an opt out in terms of a medical or a religious objection. Now, medical objection, you know, is basically you get a note from a physician that you maybe have an allergic reaction to the vaccine or you've got some other condition that would make you not a good candidate for the vaccine and generally there's not an issue with those. Now if you do get a medical exemption you'll need to be tested on a weekly basis and so you'd have to get a COVID test every week. Now the religious exemption is a little trickier because there are a lot of people using essentially form letters so they're you know, there's a lot of information that's just been shared. There are people who are applying for religious exemptions and using that as a, you know, as a, as a way out to try and not be vaccinated. And those have been looked at very, very closely. And it has to, you know, you need to have a sincere religious belief about this. Now, the good news is that, you know, all the major religions have come out in support of the vaccine. So that's a, you know, it's a tricky legal area. The Fortunately, most overwhelmingly in our healthcare organizations, whether it's um, our hospitals, whether it's our school nursing facilities, it's our other healthcare organizations, overwhelmingly our employees are vaccinated um, and are fully vaccinated. Um, there are some, I, I, I've, um, there are a few individuals who have chosen not to participate and have left their positions, but the process in terms of the validation process for the religious or medical exemption, some organizations are still going through that. So it's yet to be seen 
whether how much of an impact it will actually have. You know, if you look, for example, at what happened with one of the police officers, uh, as reported in the news in the last couple of weeks, you know, a few, few weeks ago this individual said, you know, I'm not going to get vaccinated, and then when it really came down to it, because he would have lost, this individual would have lost a lot of benefits by, you know, by not getting vaccinated, he just decided to go ahead and get vaccinated. So we, we do believe the incentive or the mandates are having an impact for some of those holdouts. But if you have a legitimate reason for not getting vaccinated, that is respected by the employers and the courts. But the, again, overwhelmingly our, in our healthcare institutions, our, the healthcare workers are vaccinated and some of the last holdouts are deciding, you know, the weekly testing is just a humbug and they don't want to continue to do it. So we are continuing to get some of these workers uh, vaccinated every week. And what can you tell us then about uh, making the vaccines available to children, you know, at doctor's offices, you know, that kind of thing? The goal is to make them as widely available as possible. Now, there are some you know, logistical issues with the administration of the drug. It's not the same as getting, you know, the normal shots that the kids would get for measles and chickenpox and everything else, diphtheria. You know, when they get those shots, they, you know, they get the shots and then their parents just take them home. With this vaccine, as, as we all know, for those of us who have gotten the, the vaccine, you know, there is a monitoring period after you get the vaccine for approximately 15 minutes or so. So there are some logistical issues around or concerns or some logistics you need to work through in administering it. But the goal is to make the vaccine as readily available as possible through schools, through pharmacies, through pediatricians' offices. Now, the pediatricians in overwhelmingly are in support of the vaccine. The question is, you know, how many pediatricians' offices have the logistical capability to be able to administer the vaccine because of, you know, you've got to be able to store the vaccine in a refrigerator, you've just got to monitor it, you've got to enter the data into the national system, you've got to be able to monitor the patients, you know, the child who's gotten the vaccine. So again, it's not just, um, it's not the same as the other vaccines. So not all pediatricians will offer the vaccine, even though they may be supportive of providing the vaccine. But again, the goal is across the whole state to make these these vaccines as accessible as possible, you know, so that parents can bring their kids in either to the schools or to their pediatrician's office or to some other location to get them vaccinated. That was the Healthcare Association's Hilton Rathel talking about where we are at in this phase of the pandemic. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Montessori Community School in Makiki, providing a Montessori education for children from 2 to 12 years old, announcing a fall virtual open house November 6th. Registration at MontessoriHawaii.org. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. 
Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Supply chain woes, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats, Lauren Teruya on the line today. Good morning, Lauren. Aloha, thank you so much for having me. So, you know, we've been hearing from trade experts about the global disruptions. You know, we've heard about the transportation issues. We've heard lots about the computer chips for the cars, but you got wind Mm -hmm. of something else. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, Civil Beats editorial board actually spoke with the director of our city departments of Parks and Rec, and she was talking to us last week about how there's not only a shortage on that end, but also our chemical supplies are being impacted. And it's kind of a twofold issue. So yes, it's supply chain related, but it's also related to the fact that we have our own carbon dioxide producer here in Hawaii. And actually, they had an electrical issue that caused mechanical shortages that has brought their carbon dioxide production down to 50%, and it's affected more people than you think. (laughs) Well, yeah, you talked about uh, chemicals for pools. Yeah, so so in addition to shortages on things like chlorine that's, that's affecting pools, uh, carbon dioxide is actually used to to manage the pH levels in the city pools. So they've had to cut back on their hours on night swims, and it's also affected things like breweries. They use carbon dioxide to distribute their their beer as well as canned beer to make sure that it doesn't get oxidized. You know, I know lots of people were looking forward to getting back in the pools, you know, because they were closed for so long mm-hmm. during COVID. <laughs> Uh, And the same with the breweries, right? The bars were were shut down for a while. So it's interesting. So not quite back to normal yet. Yeah, that's kind of the heartbreaking part of all of this. You know, we're finally getting to this place of of having, you know, restrictions be lifted. And all of a sudden there's this chemical shortage that's impacting us in more ways than one. One thing that is kind of nice, though, I was speaking with Nathan Sirota also at the Department of uh, Parks and Rec. He, He mentioned that pools have been able to adapt in some ways by finding a chemical replacement. The only caveat to that, though, is that um, rather than having those automatic pumps, you know, running without people, they actually need manpower to be to be managing the chemicals in the water and making sure that it meets Department of Health um, regulations. And so, what about uh, the the pool companies that clean, you know, the folks that own pools in their backyard? Right. So I actually did speak with a residential pool custodian, and and he said that he's actually had to rely on wholesale retailers for chlorine supplies. You know, normally they do rely on on shipments um, uh, 
uh, from abroad, but but because of of the shortage, they've had to you know go to places like Costco um, and and check from their chlorine supplies, and it's kind of like a reminder of what we were uh, dealing with back at the beginning of the pandemic when people were hoarding things like toilet paper. It's kind of a similar situation for a lot of these residential pool custodians. Yeah, but I guess if you're a small business, um, you know you want to keep your supplies in in check. You know you've got enough on hand. Right, absolutely. And and so I think one big thing that I've I've talked to everybody it's really just uh, adaptation, uh, you know, trying to figure out different ways on on how to, you know, get these local distributors to be able to uh, keep a nice flow of, of materials. Uh, I also spoke with a bulk distributor manager um, at Desert Island Beverages who said that sometimes she does have to call customers and, and tell them that she doesn't quite have exactly as much as she would normally deliver, but it's really just been a sharing game, making sure that you know everybody has enough to get by at the moment. Yeah, so if uh, they don't have beer, I guess you drink wine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you drink wine and I guess you might be swimming in the ocean a yeah, there you more. go. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thank you so much. That Thank was reporter care. Lauren Teruya with today's Reality Check. To read her story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. During the Trump administration, Democrats cried foul over what they believed was a move to weaken certain federal agencies, from the State Department to the Environmental Protection Agency to the Post Office. So what was the damage done, lasting or not? That's the subject of The Long View today. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. So what do you think? Well, this is based on a study that um, a large organization, a nonpartisan organization for effective democracy did looking at, they surveyed about, I don't know, a thousand upper level civil servants at the the end of 2020. And this is a similar survey to what they give to private sector upper level folks. And they looked at the difference and so on. So let's remember that why we thought Trump was going to damage the civil service operation is one, because he said he was. I mean, he talked about the deep state. He tried very hard and we have some very obvious cases of it. And, and another reason is that there was a lot of writing on it. Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, which everybody should read. If you like Michael Lewis and you like Moneyball and you think you care just about football and not about public administration, you'll be surprised. Anyway, Lewis's book about the early year, days of the administration and how unconcerned they were about the competence of the bureaucracies made you worry about that kind of stuff. It turns out that the story is more complicated than that. Um, It's good news, bad news, and ambiguous news. And we'll get to some of that. The good news is if you compare the the public service people, the high-level civil servants, to high-level private sector people, they do about the same. They think about the same. Each of them thinks that they're doing the work they're supposed to do. Each of them thinks they have high morale. Each of them, for the most part, thinks, and when I say each of them, they're very close on these things. Each of them uh, 
thinks that they're, you know they're they're glad to stay there and and each of them is generally satisfied with the work that's going on they differ to some extent on um and 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 the competence of the workers they differ on two things where the public sector does less well one is the ability to do long-range planning there just isn't enough and that's not a trump thing that goes way back that's a hard thing to do if you're a public office where administrations change every four years the other is that both organizations public and private talk about the difficulties of getting rid of poor performers but it's a bigger problem with uh with the uh, federal system so a lot of that is about essentially the strength of the merit system, the strength of people who kept working and decided to stick it out and were able to do work. Now, if you're beginning to get a little suspicious here, not surprising, because if you think about what Michael Lewis said when he did the study and what we've heard in uh, highly visible situations, which is, let's say, the Center for Disease Control, uh, or the National Institute of Health that have been so much involved in it, you begin to get a, a little skeptical. So we can get back to what this means overall for this study. But the important thing is, at least on the surface, is that you just had a lot of people still happy with their work um, and doing what David Brooks always says and what I've said in the past too. You really depend upon the civil, your everyday life is much effect, more affected by the civil service, by the federal bureaucracy than anything else. You're not always aware of it because a lot of this stuff is, is kind of invisible. It's not like the budget fight. Well, you know, we've heard a lot about, uh, you know, cutting through the red tape, right, the bureaucracy, and that was the one thing that Trump said, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the change, right? Well, Trump was, uh, Trump was really doing something that was more drastic than that. Cutting mm -hmm. through the red tape is, a, well, first of all, it's a, it's a traditional Republican argument, but it's a broader argument than that. It's the sense that government bureaucracies are too bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. And part of that in their favor is because they have to do things where, where we require a lot more rules. If you're wanting a welfare bureaucracy, you're going to have a lot of rules because we want to make sure people don't qualify who shouldn't qualify, and that, take, that takes longer. Trump really had something else in mind. He wanted political control over these things, and uh, he never quite put it that way, but that's his idea was essentially people who work for the federal government should be loyal to me. So, but it's important to understand the legitimacy or the, at least the popularity of the argument that you just said, that we, it's a part of our political culture, probably with good reason, to worry about red tape. Well, you know, I guess the bottom line, though, is that uh, they're thriving. So the, any damage that might have been done, uh, you know, was bounce back. I don't know. Well, here's what we don't know, and here's where it gets confusing. What you really have here is a survey of people who are in the know but they still, because they're people in the know, are giving their version of what this is about. It seems to me what else you want to do is to look at the agency's work, look at what's actually going on and to see how that matches. So, you know, in the beginning you had, for example, Michael Lewis shows how destructive the early days of uh, the Department of Commerce were in terms of, now you may think big deal that's business no it's not just business it's NOAA it's the hurricane data it's the it's the weather system um, 
So you're really worried about that, and, and with good reason. Now you'd want to go back and look at NOAA again to see what kind of things they're producing. It's important to know what the, what the people think, and it's kind of interesting to think that with all of the four years of, of ferment, that these folks still have a sense of confidence, a sense of morale, but that's not the full answer to the question. Well, I, I just, uh, you know, I went back to look at some of the headlines, and yeah, there was everything from, you know, heads were rolling, uh, people were leaving because they just felt that they just couldn't be put in that position, and yet some stayed because they thought, no, I'm sure. going to fight the good fight, I, I believe in this mission, and I'm going to protect it. Well, the ones that you knew about leaving, that you heard about leaving, either were, were well, there was a number of them that left because they turned out to be corrupt. Uh, yes, you know, that, that was generally at the cabinet level. You lost the, the uh, Secretary of Health in a heartbeat because of some stock thing. You lost that kind of stuff. So, and, and so you're right, but there, it, 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 this requires a much more closer look. But the important thing is you've got to suspend your um, predispositions about the bureaucracy in order to understand, I think, what's going on here. Yeah, but uh, it's certainly the the time to reflect. And like I said, going back and look at the headlines, and it was like, wow, I remember being very oh, stressed yeah. about that. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, for sure. I don't know if... I don't know if I could have worked in that kind of environment, but then again, I didn't have the—I I didn't have to. It wasn't my salary. It wasn't my stick to itiveness. It wasn't my sense of of mission, and it wasn't the sense that I have the skills to be able to keep working and let all this BS go over my head because day to day I can still do important stuff. Yeah. So I guess then, uh, as you take stock. These people think that uh, they're doing okay. Yeah, I think they're doing okay. They may not be as right as this makes it sound, but they certainly think they're doing okay, and that's a big difference from what lots of folks thought was going to happen. Right. I mean, you know, we did hear a lot about those executive orders and how <laughs> oh, they were changing yeah. directions well, left and right. I mean, he it, to, to, he was he was Trump was a is an, a norm breaker for sure. And one of the places he was very clear he was trying to do it was in this in the federal uh, bureaucracy. Right. Okay. Well. We'll see what uh, 2022 uh, brings. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Sure. Neil. Take care. Neil Milner is a retired professor of political science. He joins us as a con contributing editor with his biweekly segment, The Long View. Support for HPR comes from La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls, committed to raising women of purpose on purpose, announcing a virtual open house November 6th. Registration at lapietra.edu slash admissions. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll learn about the creation of a 5G innovation lab here in Hawaii to test new mobile applications. With commercial 5G deployment underway, we'll find out what potential use cases this wireless technology can enable. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
On Maui this week, the county council got its first look at a property tax measure. Reporter Kuvehi Hirishi joins us to give us a deeper look at the issues behind what's being called the Kapuna Aina Bill. Good morning. Good morning. The Aina Kapuna Bill, yes, uh, was introduced earlier this year by Maui County Councilwoman Keani Rollins Fernandez. And what this would do is it would allow longtime Maui families an opportunity to dedicate their land for 10 years, meaning not sell it, and in return, they'd be able to pay that minimum property tax of $350 a year. Uh, now, this proposal was driven in large part by longtime McKenna families who, in the last five or so years, have seen their property taxes sort of skyrocket. Uh, for example, uh, one of those families, one of the original families of McKenna, the Changs, uh, 89-year-old Ed Chang, who's sort of the family patriarch, lived and owned property. His family has lived and owned property in McKenna for, since the 1870s. Wow. Right, and they've been able to hold on to that land. Uh, but in the last five years, he says his taxes have jumped 425% on this property uh, to an all-time high of 22,000 uh, 22, in 2019. Uh, the Kukahiko, another a longtime family, the Kukahiko property along the McKenna shoreline, uh, got a property tax bill this year for $83,000. Um, and combined with last year for them, they're looking at uh, nearly $180,000 for this land parcel that's uh, less than an acre. So these aren't Whoa. big properties, but they are along the shoreline, right? So just to be clear, though, this isn't <laughs> a bill um, that... It's not an exemption of it. No, it's not like just Native Hawaiians. It's not, yep, yeah, it's not. Uh, in terms of uh, qualifications for this program, the requirements are that uh, the family would have to have owned that property for or held on to that property dating back to June 30th of 1940. So that's the date. If you had this property in your, uh, in your family then and you've been able to keep it, um, you know, it hasn't left the family in terms in terms of ownership, you may be eligible for this um, sort of tax relief. Uh, but you would need to dedicate, as I mentioned, you would need to keep sort of promise that you're going to keep this land in your family for another 10 years. And there's going to be a renewal right now as the bill is written. They'd be able to renew it after 10 years, um, hoping that the family would be able to keep it for that 10 year, right? So if you uh, decide to sell Within that 10-year uh, period, you would need to pay the taxes. So pay oh. back yep, the property taxes. So this, you know, it's sort of an experiment, I think, right now with a lot of uh, news about rising real estate values statewide. Folks are looking, longtime families, local families are looking for solutions. And this is uh, an interesting um, framework for this uh, problem, I guess. But uh, for, like I said earlier, these aren't big properties, uh, but they are surrounded by development. Uh, folks familiar with the McKenna Coast know there are resorts and high-end homes. Chang's land, for example, is flanked on one end by a $20 million home that was just sold this year and another uh, $25 million home that had just finished construction. And he's afraid once that sells, real estate values will go up and his bill next year will be even higher. Uh, we spoke to Chang's granddaughter, uh, Kanani Nohiyama Kaimoku, who said she's worried that her generation's going to be responsible for not being able to keep the family land after, you know, they've kept it since 1870 because they simply can't afford the property tax. Ma'oaku. Ka au hao o ka mako uku o ka maka hiki. I nga 
She says it's uh, way more, the property taxes are way more than she can afford in a year. And so if she, she's worried that if she doesn't hold on to this land, that her children will not be able to have the same connection to this ancestral land that she has been able to get and also that generations before her have been able to um, afford. Um, her family comes, she comes from a long line of fishing and farming and uh, ranchers that have used this land for that particular purpose and those traditions will be lost, she's afraid, if they're not able to keep this land. Uh, but the issue of rising property values, you know, squeezing out longtime local families is nothing, is not uh, isolated to Maui. And uh, this could be something that's replicated statewide. Uh, right now, the Aina Kupuna bill is up for a first reading on November 5th. And if passed, uh, families would need to sign up or apply by the end of the year. So moving really quickly. Wow, no, very, very quickly. Um, so has this bill been in the works for a while? Or? It, it's been a problem for a while, but the bill uh, was introduced a few months ago and passed out of committee unanimously, now before the full county council. And uh, we haven't seen too much pushback just yet. Uh, in fact, the Maui County Real Property Tax Office is already sort of uh, having interested families kind of contact them give them the TMK for your um, for your property and address and they'll keep you in contact if and when the the bill passes. Okay. And do you know how they picked on the the date specifically? I know there was a back and forth and there was a change in that date initially, but for the families that are remaining cuz many have left McKenna uh, that are kind of dealing like the Changs with this rise in property taxes, those families uh, sort of the that was the earliest that those families particularly uh, were able to qualify yeah. for. Interesting issue. Thanks so much. Thanks. We've been talking with HPR reporter Kuvehi Hiraishi. To read more of her stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. One year ago today, we aired our first Manu Minute, featuring a native honey creeper, the EEV. 35 birds later, we're looking back at what we've learned. There's been plenty to celebrate in 2021. An endangered Oahu uh, was observed on Mauna Kea for the first time in more than 60 years. Two alala found a home at the Paniava Zoo and the rediscovery of a kiwiku, released on Maui and thought dead, offered hope for its species. But the year was not without its hardships, including news that the eight native Hawaiian birds uh, are to be taken off the endangered species list and declared extinct. We reached out to our very own Monument host, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart for the bird's eye view. It doesn't change the, the actual situation for those birds. And while most of us have given up hope that we'll ever see those species, we still know that there's a possibility that even though they've been declared extinct, there may be one or a pair out there still in the forest. I am an optimist generally, so even when things maybe aren't going that well, I view them as being perhaps better than they are. 
So I would say I have more good days. Um, you know, just like today, I, I went out and, and did a field trip with students from my avian biology class, and we went up Battle Road, and it was just a beautiful day, and we were able to walk up into the forest, and we went into a beautiful kipuka with koa and ohia trees, and there were five different species of native Hawaiian birds singing, and, you know, elipio came and sat on a branch right next to us. Generally speaking, I would, I would say I have more good days than bad days, even though the, oh boy, some of the problems that we're facing and working on trying to to alleviate can be very depressing sometimes. Hawaiian birds are just so important ecologically to Hawaii. You know, they're the first land vertebrates that made it here and just play such outsized ecological roles here as pollinators and seed dispersers and incredibly important in, in Hawaiian culture. You know, despite being so important here and just, you know, the original colonizers of the islands as they came out of the ocean 15, 20 million years ago. A lot of people don't know much about them. That was Professor Patrick Hart, and he's got more for you today on a rare Kauai songbird, the Puai Ohi. Here's your Manu Minute. The Puai Ohi is a small thrush that's found only on Kauai. With a population size of only about 500 individuals, they're not only critically endangered, but they're also one of the rarest birds in the world. They're a bit drab, with grayish-brown plumage, a white eye ring, and pink feet, but the juveniles have a striking scalloped pattern of feathers on their breast. In the 1990s, the Puaohi was thought to be on the brink of extinction, so biologists from state and federal agencies, along with the San Diego Zoo, started a captive breeding program to act as an insurance policy against extinction and to add wild birds to the population. By 2012, over 200 Puaiohi had been raised in captivity and released back to the wild, though many of these did not survive through their first year. The current population can be found primarily within a small patch of rainforest, only about two miles by three miles wide, on the Alaka'i Plateau on the top of the island of Kauai. Within that area, they're found mainly along the banks of the many streams where they nest in steep ledges and cliffs. Like other rare and cryptic birds, the best way to find one is not by sight, but by sound. Similar to other thrushes, Puaiohi love to consume insects and all kinds of native fruits from the forest. One recent study showed that they're better than any other bird species on Kauai at dispersing fruits from native plants. Unlike many other native Hawaiian birds, disease may not be the major reason why they're so rare, as Puaiohi seem to have a natural resistance to mosquito-transmitted avian malaria. Instead, rat predation on females sitting on the nest is likely the primary reason their numbers remain so low. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
we are all out of time now. But up tomorrow, we're going to be checking up on the status of the fight against the Little Red Fire Island on the Valley Isle. Give us some feedback. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation 